Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writer's Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 500 writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I'm a writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, and other programs. I have a couple of cool projects out this first quarter of 2017 that I hope you'll check out. One is a Supernatural Western comic book series from Boom Publishing that I wrote with my writing partner, Ben Acker, and our friend, the TV showrunner, Andrew Miller. It's beautifully illustrated by Hannah Christensen, and the first issue is available in comic stores and online February 8th. In March comes the first book in a series of young adult novels that Acker and I wrote called Star Wars Join the Resistance. It takes place just before The Force Awakens and is about a bunch of kids who join the fight against the First Order. But mostly they have adventures, fall in love with each other, and get in trouble. I hope you'll check out both of those projects. We're very proud of how they came out. Let me know who you'd like to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, liking the Writer's Panel on Facebook, and visiting writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Reading those reviews really provides a pick-me-up. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Thank you guys for being here. Um, And I'm going to have you introduce yourselves so the listeners can differentiate your voices. Uh, Glenn, starting with you. Tell us who you are. Tell us where people have seen your name on television. Okay. My name is Glenn Gordon Karen, and um, I've created a, a few shows. I created Moonlighting uh, back in the 80s and then created a short-lived show called Now and Again, which was on CBS sort of briefly. Uh, created Medium. Um, I was an executive producer on an FX show called Tyrant, and I'm currently uh, executive producing Bull on CBS, directed... Uh, bunch of movies, um, and I've been fooling people for a really long time. <laughs> Keep it up. We're enjoying the way you're fooling us. <laughs> uh, my name's Rob Wright. I'm delighted to be here uh, with Glenn and Hillary, mm-hmm. and uh, I, uh, I'm, uh, I've written on a ton of shows. Uh, I co-created a show called The Mob Doctor that ran very briefly on Fox Four years ago, uh, I'm currently uh, the co-EP on a show called Lethal Weapon, which is another Fox show uh, that's in its second season. Great. And Hillary? Uh, I'm Hillary. I think I'm the noob in the room. Um, I'm currently on a show called Beyond on Freeform. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that's really all there is to say about me at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you kind of came up from assistantship and stuff I like did. that, right? So we'll, did, we'll talk yeah. about some of that stuff. Um, Glenn, I don't know your breaking in story. How did you get your start in this business? It, it's a weird one. Um, and, and context in terms of time is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I w- graduated college in the mid-'70s, and back then, in order to study filmmaking, uh, you really had to go to either USC, UCLA, or NYU. And I very much wanted to be a film director. That was kind of my laser focus, but I could afford none of those schools. Um, I was very, very lucky. I went to the State University of New York at Geneseo, and I started to study speech communication. And I'll try and make this fast because it's a weird story. And I was recruited to be part of a focus group for a film that was being sneak, sneaked mm-hmm. in Rochester, New York. And uh, after the film, which was The Paper Chase... Just sure. to give you all a, a timestamp, <laughs> um, 
this person started asking questions of the focus group. I didn't realize at the time that person was a director, the director of the film. Hmm. And um, whatever I was saying intrigued him because he kept saying, wow, you're really into this. You, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a film director. And he said, oh, what are you studying? And I said, speech communication. And he said, why? He said, you need to study drama. He said, you don't need to study filmmaking. You need to study drama. You need to learn how to read a script. You need to learn how to write a script. You need to learn what it's like to act. You need to learn to paint a flat. You need to learn to build a flat. You need to learn to sell tickets. You know, um, So I went back to the school that I was attending and very much, I was very uncomfortable with the idea, but I went to the drama department where I you know, didn't feel immediately like, oh, I'm among my peeps or anything. Mm-hmm. But I, I went and saw the head of the department. I said, I'm curious about And I took to it like a duck to water. Hmm. I just took to it. Like, I won the, um, the Irene Ryan American College Theater Festival Award, Best Actor. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, I mean, I, I just loved it. And, and so you were, I mean, that's, that's an interesting thing to me because I know many of us as writers are so much more comfortable not being mm-hmm. in the spotlight. Yeah. But, but the acting part was actually okay for you. Yeah, although I never said this is what I want to do. I mean, mm-hmm. I, it was always a means to an end. It was always this will make me a better director. Sure. I, by the way, writing wasn't even on the menu. Right. That sounded hard, and I didn't quite understand how that <laughs> fit into the whole thing. And, and well, not at the time, the director was sort of the star. He was. Anyway, it, it was very Scorsese much like being a rock Coppola. star. Yeah. I, yeah, I wanted to be. I wanted to be Arthur Penn. I sure. wanted to be Marty Scorsese. One of those Mike Nichols. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I left college equipped to do nothing, but I, I got work in some of the finer gas stations uh, <laughs> on Long Island. And but I, I realized very quickly that I didn't have the money to make a film to show what I wanted mm-hmm. to do. And someone suggested we well, should write one. That doesn't cost very much. So I started writing literally in my mother's kitchen. Mm-hmm. And a very a great act of luck, uh, a woman that I went to college with gave one of my scripts to um, a couple of young guys in New York who worked for a little tiny production company. They asked me to write a film for them. I wrote a film for them. Two years went by. I never heard from them. And one day my phone rang. And it was these two guys. Um, one's name was Warren Littlefield. <laughs> and the other was a guy named Stu Sheslow. And they said, hey, we're working. At that time, they were working for NBC. They actually, Warren stayed, obviously, at NBC. But at a very junior level. Mm-hmm. And Fred Silverman had an idea for a pilot. What did I think of this pilot? And I was a big snob, and, and <laughs> can, can you say dirty? We encourage it. Okay. <laughs> I was a big snob and very much an asshole, and said, that sounds like just a total piece of garbage to me. And they said, well, you have a meeting about it on Friday at Universal. And I said, on Park Avenue? Because I, I lived in New York. I had sure. no frame of, of reference. They said, no, Universal City, California. I said, well, how do you get there? <laughs> I mean, I, I lived a very, you know, cloistered yeah. life. And they said, you get on an airplane. I said, who pays for that? They said, you do. No one knows who you are. And um, anyway, long story short, I got on the plane. I went uh, convinced, by the way, that I'd get there and there'd be no meeting. But in fact, there was a meeting. I walked in and they looked at me and they said, where do you live? And I said, well, I live on, on 22nd Street between 7th and 8th. <laughs> Sid Vicious is my neighbor. Nancy Spungen throws up on me in the deli. Uh, they said, gee, that's a shame because if you lived here in California, we'd send you home. You could write a little story if we liked the story. Mind you, I was pitching a pilot I thought was stupid. Right. And everybody started to get up and leave. And when I saw them get up and leave, I started to talk. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you know, if you let me do it, here's what I'd do. And I didn't stop for an hour and a half. <laughs> and when it was over, they said, you have a deal. I didn't That's even know insane. what you have a deal. Right. I didn't have an agent. No. Nothing. Um, got back to New York, wrote this pilot, handed it in. 
Uh, what, let, let me stop you for a sec. Yes. I, I want to dig in on uh, just a couple of items. Uh, first of all, the, the scripts that you were writing right. in your mother's kitchen, what was the tenor of these? What were they like? They're probably very much like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kid. Um, I'm try- actually, I'm trying to remember. They were, they were sort of, I was very taken with Capra, mm-hmm. uh, Howard Hawks, and that uh, sort of ilk of filmmaking. At the same time, uh, I, you know, I was very much a child of the 70s, so, and, and it was an amazing time yeah. to love the movies because literally every week something would come up that would just knock you on your ass. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I always joke about this. When I was growing up, we would go to the movies to learn this sort of what it meant to be an adult. You would see things and you wouldn't always completely understand them, but you were fascinated by them. As opposed to now, we go to the movies to sort of be reminded what it's like to be a child. <laughs> sure. Um, and so it was a very different experience yeah. and, and very personal in a lot of ways. Um, and that was sort of my beacon. That's and, and television, by the way, also wasn't even on the menu for me. I was a big star. Sure. I didn't watch television. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I wrote this pilot and... They shot it, and it was rewritten by some producer at mm-hmm. Universal. They shot it, but um, was it a half-hour pilot? It was, a, uh, it was an hour pilot. Okay, um, it was called the God Squad. How embarrassing is that? <laughs> and, you can sell that right now. <laughs> and uh, um, I immediately got signed by an agent at ICM. Mm-hmm. Who said whose first job is writing a pilot? <laughs> right. And that Jimmy Stewart, by the way, oh said God. I'm going to come out of retirement and he, he was going to play God. You know, it was like a one day a week role. Right. Sure. Um, so they signed me and they said, uh, "Well, what?" T-, you know, and I said, "Wow, this is great. I'm going to direct movies." And they said, "Okay, what television shows do you like?" <laughs> and I said, I don't, "I don't like television. I don't watch television. I have no interest in television." They said, "Go home and watch some television." So I did. And like two nights later, this show came on. I had never seen before. I think it was the premiere. It's called Taxi. And so I called ICM and I said, <laughs> I saw this show, Taxi, and they said, okay, stay by your phone. I, I swear this is a true story. I know you. This you, is insane. This is how easy it is, you guys. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I'll send you the book. Uh, and, and literally two days later, they called and said, you have a, a deal to do five episodes of Taxi. Oh, wow. But you have, because they. I'm guessing Jim Brooks or somebody read the script, and mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see why I say I'm guessing. Um, but you have to move to California. So I bought a car, and uh, I remember calling with the money from the pie. I called sure. my agent and said, hey, I bought a car. He said, what would you buy? I said, a Plymouth. And there was this, like, extended <laughs> silence. Until I, and when I got here, I realized I was the only person with a Plymouth in all of Southern California. Sure, right. um, but, but anyway, I, I, and so I went to do taxi. I was so excited. I loved, I developed an ardor for the show. That, mm-hmm. And... I think I probably won the award for most obnoxious person who doesn't know anything about anything on a show because we go to these I go to these meetings with Glenn and Les Charles who were great writers and this was their show and they'd say okay I mean you know Louis I think he walks out of the uh, taxi stand and goes over to out and I go no 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 he wouldn't do that oh, no <laughs> and I would do and I would fight passionately about characters I didn't create to right. the people who created them. <laughs> And but ultimately wrote an episode that became a sweeps week episode and did very well hmm. and then went home and waited to do these other four episodes. And the phone never rang. And I would ask my agent constantly, I said, Hey, when when do they want me back? Relax, relax. And he'd send me and I did other th- I started to do other things. Um, and it was only years later when, when I was doing moonlighting and they were doing cheers mm-hmm. and we would meet at all these events that I realized my God, I must have been insufferable. Absolutely. I wouldn't I, have been in a room with me. Right. But anyway, that, that's how I got my start. That's I mean, fantastic. That's, I want to I pick up on that for a second, and we'll, we'll get to the breaking in on you guys. But you've both been new people in the rooms, and that yeah. is 
that's a tough thing to be. Uh, I want to hear how you know you approach that. What, uh, uh, Rob? What was the first show you were staffed on? The first show that I was staffed on was uh, CBS did a remake of The Magnificent Seven. Really? And uh, and I came on in the middle of the season. It was weird. Normally you get a front 13 and a back 9, but it was a mid-season show, so they actually wound up doing the back 13. Mm-hmm. And I was... Uh, I was on for the back 13. So they even already had a staff, and so you were, they, you were really uh, the new guy. Uh, well, yes and no. Hmm. What happened was I think the entire staff got swept, oh, okay. except for uh, the woman who's running the room. And um, just in terms of like breaking into television... Um, so she's the one who who brought me on, mm-hmm. and the reason that she brought me on is because starting out I was doing features. Right, and you, you had won. Was it the Nichols? I won, the, won the, the not the not the actually the Nicholson Award oh, at okay. USC Film School, Thank which you. wound up actually paying for the rest of film school, which was awesome. That's amazing. Um, but uh, but you but had the script that really people responded. Yeah, I had a I had a I was working and selling movies that never got made, and <laughs> was in a writers group and had been in a writers group for a while with. A split of TV people hmm. and film people, and I and I was very sad because I'd been in this group for maybe I don't know four or five years at that point, and was making a living and was doing fine, but nothing was getting made, and it was very very frustrating. And I looked around the room, and pretty much everybody who was working in film was unhappy. They were unhappy because they weren't working, or they were unhappy because they were doing a movie, but the director was sidelining them, hmm. or they were uh, they were involved, but uh, they were getting. Re- written by somebody else or they weren't allowed on set and and everybody in television was kind of happy or at least they had hope right uh, if they didn't have a job uh, staffing season was coming up if they were on a show and they didn't like the thing that they wrote they were going to get a chance to write another one it was this this you know because the tv machine needs to be fed and so there was this optimism and so i went into the writers room I was like, guys, I know I've been doing nothing but movies, and you guys have been reading nothing but movies, but decided I want to try to get into television. And, uh, <laughs> for my own mental health. For my own mental health. And Melissa was like, oh, I'm on a show. You want to uh, come and work on this show? And I was like, sure. And so that's how I, so that was my first gig. <laughs> that was my first great. TV gig. And uh, so it was, uh, it was lovely. It yeah. was, you know, it was uh, me and uh, a bunch of new people, and we right. were going to try to make a... A good show, and what were? The, do you remember the it, mistakes you made as a young writer in the room? Uh, vi- I mean, you know, yeah, I remember. <laughs> you know, I remember. <laughs> I remember saying, you know, it's the Magnificent Seven, right? So it was supposed to be. Uh, it's supposed to be entertainment, right? It's supposed to be fun, and I remember coming in and saying, "Let's try to make this to." Both Melissa and also like the, the executive producers, showrunner people, was like, let's try to make this like a really good Western. Like that was like a novel idea. <laughs> like that's, you know, I was sort of that guy who's like, yeah, but let's try. Like, like exactly. Like let's not aim for last. Let's try to win an Emmy with this one. And they're like, uh huh, uh huh. Um, so that was uh, that was certainly uh, an education. Really also, I mean, there was a in, in terms of dealing with talent, hmm. the issue was there were seven guys on the show, and CBS said, we want all seven guys in as many scenes as possible. Wow. And so you would write those scenes, but then you only have, like, every guy has maybe one line. Right. And uh, and then you would have to go to each, there were seven trailers, and when you were finished with a script, you had to go into each trailer and have each one of them sign off, and of course, most of them would say, why 
am I in this scene? I only have one line, and so you'd have to. Uh, so that was also. I don't know if that's necessarily a mistake that I made, but it was certainly it was a challenge. A challenge for this kind yeah. of show. Yeah, yeah, it was a little nuts. That's funny. Yeah, um, and and Hillary. You've been in rooms as a writer's assistant. You've been, yes. You were in the person of interest room. Yes. Um, but Beyond is your first staff job, right? It is, actually, uh, yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit about what you learned from person of interest and just being there and contributing where you could. Sure. And then taking on the, the full-time writer job. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I started. <laughs> uh, so I started on person of interest as a PA, actually, mm-hmm. um, and worked my way up to being a writer's assistant. And I got to be in the room for a couple years um, on that and got to do a couple freelances for them, which was really cool. Um, it, I mean, I think that the what I really learned, uh, I learned a lot just sitting in the room silently. I wasn't allowed to talk. All I did was take notes and mm-hmm. listen to, you know, listen to different writers and how they pitch and what what fails, what succeeds, and um, watching the process from beginning to end. So um, I, I sort of, I, so I went to grad school for um, screenwriting, mm-hmm. um, and I would say that being a writer's assistant was the actual grad school experience. Yeah. That's where I learned everything. Sure. I mean, you can't, you can't understand being in a writer's room until you're in a writer's room. Right. Right. Definitely. I mean, there's, and, and every room is different too. Yeah, and um, and I think a lot of schools are, uh, at least from my experience, are very focused on um, features, which, mm-hmm. you know, y- y- it's uh, they don't really teach very much about television and how to uh, be in a room, p- particularly. Um, so that was, I mean, that was very educational. And there were a lot of really, I mean, the, you know, Jonathan Nolan was the creator of that yeah. show, and he was in the room a lot. Um, Greg Plagueman, who's an incredibly experienced um, showrunner, and there were a lot of uh, co. We had four co-EPs at a time on that show, which I know is a lot. Yeah. It was a big staff. Um, but yeah, David Slack, um, Amanda Siegel, yeah. Denise Tay, um, Ashley Gable. These are all um, sort of heavy hitters, too. Yeah, and a lot of them have been running their own shows since yeah. Person of Interest. Uh, so I learned a hell of a lot, especially having a lot of um, high-level women who yeah. had real voices and real influence on the show. Well, that's what I'm curious about. Like, What, what did you take from them that you were able to apply to the next job? Um, I mean... Just seeing them and seeing them having voices and seeing their point of view being valued, I mm. think, was very educational. And when I started doing freelances and being on set, um, I think that there were certain challenges that I faced being a young woman that uh, uh, that you know men who are a little bit more respected by certain people didn't necessarily have. <laughs> and so when I came back and I thought I was the only person who had mm. had this experience when I spoke to Amanda and to Denise and um, some of the other writers, uh, I realized I wasn't the only one and that made me feel a lot yeah, better about sure. my competence. For sure. <laughs> so. Um, and so going into beyond, uh, how big is the room on that show? Um, it's it's small compared to person of interest. We have seven sure. writers. Well, um, it's, it's ten episodes, right? Yeah. Um, so seven writers, and you were there for the first season. You're back for the second season. Yes. Um, what What do you see as your role on this show? Um, well, I so I'm a story editor mm-hmm. um, now, and uh, it's you know you, you walk into a room and people you always have to kind of observe the hierarchy and how much you're allowed to talk and how much you need to shut up and just listen. And um, I I think that. I, I, I don't know. I we I just we're all equally allowed to contribute ideas, mm-hmm. and so you know I have that uh, being the we have two women and five men, and so there's always the you know we'll we'll break a story for a girl and look at Hillary and be like, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know how how um, does that go over with you? You know I 
I I like I like that that uh, that they care. Um, sure. And the so, question is asked at yes, all. Yes, because sometimes something. you know sometimes sometimes people get hired um, as the diverse person or the woman mm-hmm. and. Uh, Nobody really wants to hear you say, you know, that's really, that's kind of a shitty storyline for her. Sorry. I don't know. Uh, Or whatever. Um, So it's nice to be listened to. Um, Sometimes uh, you do start to feel like you're the gatekeeper of all women and of all people of color and all that. And it uh, can, it can be a little exhausting. Um, Absolutely. But I'm, but I'm happy to do it. Right, and and it sounds like I mean we were talking before you have a healthy room that where yes. that doesn't really that isn't really the case. You know, you're as yeah. valued as as every writer in it, yes. and not and just I'm, for yeah. an expert, a so-called expertise. <laughs> yes, no, and I'm I'm lucky to have been in rooms that are have been really great about yeah. that. That's really good. Um, I want to talk some more about rooms, uh, Glenn. What was the first writers' room you were in? So you were on Taxi, and were you in the room for that? No, one I, episode? you would go in. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say this. I'm old enough to remember the first day I heard the term "the room" and went, yeah. "What's that?" Sure. And I had done a bunch of television part of that. <laughs> so it's it's it, to me the, the the concept of the room and the sort of canonizing of the room. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I have a very ambivalent relationship with the room. When we did, for instance, when we did Moonlighting, we didn't have a thing called a room. We had a conference room, and when we needed to, we would all collect in there, and we'd sort of either talk about a story or confront a problem, and then when that was solved, everyone went back to their offices and wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, again, is still the way on many shows. I, I um, think, I mean, I um, e- even the room I have now on Bull, we yeah. only have seven. Uh, I, like, I like small staffs. Yeah. Uh, I like everybody to write. Um, I think it's really important. I think a room can be a very easy place to hide, frankly. Um, and we can't make anything that happens in the room. <laughs> At some point, everybody has to retreat to their computers right. and absolutely and write. Um, but I do remember, as I say, the, the, the first writer's room I was in after after my one episode of Taxi, <laughs> um, I did... I started doing one-hour drama, which is really what I was most interested in. And mm-hmm. I got a call from... Uh, Charlie Joffe, who produced all, the, all of Woody Allen's mm-hmm. movies, and he said, we're producing our first television show with this genius. Would you like to meet him? We, we think you guys would get along. And so I went and I met a gentleman named Steve Gordon who had never done anything, uh, but he had created this show called Good Time Harry, and the staff was a half-hour comedy. James Burroughs directed the pilot, and the staff was Steve Gordon, Mickey Rose, who was Woody Allen's collaborator sure, on yeah. all the early, and me. Oh and yeah, yeah, but I mean, ignorance <laughs> is bliss. I thought yeah, this is absolutely. great, and I get to go to Universal every day. And look, my name's <laughs> on a parking space. I mean, uh, uh, my priorities were, you know. What was the premise of that show? I don't know that at all. It was well because it showed at ten thirty on Friday. Fred Silverman hated it so much Fantastic. that it, it aired uh, ten thirty on a Friday night. <laughs> Steve went on and directed a little movie. Wrote and directed a little movie called Arthur. Oh, no kidding. And then promptly died of a heart attack. Oh. Was, it, truly, but he was wow. truly one of the funniest people I had ever met. He came out of advertising. Um, Did you find yourself, I mean, as a guy who wanted to become, wanted to be the serious film director, right, even yeah. though, like, you, you mentioned Mike Nichols, but even right. for him, like, he was a serious guy. Sure. Um, uh, did you find these comedy rooms? Did you take to them easily? Yeah, I mean, I've left out part of the yeah. autobiography because people need to sleep and eat and do other things. <laughs> but I mean, I, I was I was at the Second City Workshop for six months. I mean, I had a okay. background in in comedy, um, and I enjoyed comedy. But I wanted to be a filmmaker. None of this felt like it all right. felt like proscenium theater to me, as opposed to yeah the the intimacy of film. Um, so the 
first thing I so I, I did that, and then Steve Tesich, who had won the Academy Award for uh, the movie Breaking Away mm-hmm. as a writer, um, he and Sam Cohn. Uh, reached out to me. Again, the whys of all these things, I don't completely understand. <laughs> sure. uh, but they said Steve wanted to turn the movie into a television show, and he asked if I would help him do that. Hmm. Um, and that sounded like filmmaking. So I said, yes. And we shot it in Athens, Georgia, which felt like filmmaking. You know, you, you were away from home. <laughs> right. You're not on this theater yeah. stage. And that was really the beginning of everything, because we did, we did six or seven episodes. Um, we got fantastic reviews. Hmm. Uh, no one watched it. Hmm. Um, and, but ABC, which is the network it was on, went, didn't know who, you know, who was this? I think I was 24. Who was this 24-year-old who's sort of doing this? And they came to me and said, we want to put you in a contract. We want you to create a company. Hmm. We'll finance it, and we'll give you three two-hour movie of the weeks to make, which are actually backdoor pilots. And the third of those two-hour movie of the weeks was Moonlighting. Huh. And that sort of obviously started everything. Uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, a very different time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although those, those deals still exist. They don't guarantee that kind of... Here's the difference. The yeah. difference was they said to me, start a company. Yeah. Back then, if you were Steve Cannell and you had an idea for a show, you could go into a network, sell the idea. You, Steve Cannell, would make the show, own the negatives, right. sell the negatives. Yeah. The Moonlighting deal was one of the first deals where the network said, we're going to own the show with you. That was actually prohibited at, legally at that moment, but they decided to sort of test the waters. Interesting. So I owned half of it. They owned half right. of it. I went and rented space at 20th Century Fox, which at that time, it's hard to believe, was on its but people thought it was yeah, going to yeah. go out of business. So we rented three stages and a couple of buildings. <laughs> I had no idea what I was doing because I had never worked on a real network show. I had right. no training. I mean, I'm looking at these credits. Like, you have a credit on Fame. Right. I wrote a script for Was fame. it a freelance? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then a bunch on Remington Steel. Yeah, I did. <laughs> um, so Steve, so I get a call. These two guys, Steve Bochco and Michael Kozel, call, and they say, hey, we're going to do this show. We'd like you to do it with us. And they had shot the pilot. Mm-hmm. So I came over and watched the pilot. It was called Hill Street Station. Uh-huh. And I watched the pilot and went, well, this won't work. And they said, why? And I said, well, first of all, you killed the wrong guy at the end. Because in the pilot, they killed Charlie Haid. <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, A. And B, it's just it's so dark and phonetic. And nah, 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 nah. I was such a genius. <laughs> and so they said, gosh, we really want to do this with you. And I, I passed. Then I got a call to do another MTM show. I can't remember the name of it. And I passed. And... I woke up one morning and realized I didn't have a job. <laughs> and MTM, for whatever reason, was a really ardent suitor. And they said, we have one show left. And it was a show called Remington Steel. And it was a genre that I have no real interest. I mean, none. Yeah. I mean, to me, that was just sort of, you know. I was always fascinated. But back in that moment, there were, every network had like 10 detective shows. Mm-hmm. And I would drive home from work, and I wouldn't see a single goddamn detective agency. I couldn't figure <laughs> out where all these detectives right. came from. It just seemed silly to me, preposterous, and, and it was of no interest. But it was sort of the last job. So I, and it, the pilot was directed by a guy named Bob Butler. Bob had directed the pilot for Hill Street. <laughs> Bob had directed the pilot for Batman. Bob had directed the pilot oh, wow. for Star Trek. So he was somebody I wanted to get to know. I wanted to sort of learn at his knee and understand, and I thought, and he was going to stay with the show a little bit. So I thought, I'm going to go on this show. Went on the show, instantly connected with Pierce Brosnan. 
we were the same age. We liked each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I thought he was funny. I thought I can write for him. Hmm. But the concept, concept of the show was he wasn't supposed to be he was the pretty girl and Stephanie <laughs> Zimbalist was supposed to be you know it was all that stuff right. anyway I did the show I ended up writing credited and uncredited a lot of those first group of episodes and then a pilot I had written for ABC earlier suddenly went on the front burner and I said I have to go I'm going to go do this pilot and MTM said you can't go we right. you know because I was basically sort of writing the first I basically wrote the first 13, hmm. only because I didn't know not to. So, like, <laughs> they needed scripts. And, right. and again, there was if no room. you could room. get it done. I mean, I tell you, there was no room. There mm-hmm. was no, we didn't have that sort of, it was sort of controlled chaos. It was just, oh, they need another script. Right. We better write another script. So you just left on your left to your own devices to, to, to create to, story? To, yeah, pretty much. I mean, Michael Gleason, who created the show, was there. But he, um, and he certainly had things to say, but... Um, and were they rewritten? My scripts? Yeah. No. No, I was the guy who was rewriting <laughs> oh, okay. other people's. Interesting. Again, I think because I found a sound for mm-hmm. the show fairly quickly. Sure. You keyed into something. Something. And yeah. I think a lot of it was Pierce. You know, again, sure. we were the same age. And there weren't a lot of people my age. You know, you'd look around, there'd be, right. you know, a lot of people who'd been doing it for a while. Um, so, you know, but but I, it wasn't a career for me. I didn't look and say, boy, if I'm lucky, I can turn this into a seven-year show. I go, <laughs> you know, I'll, if I have to do this forever, right. I blow my. You knew how to out. do it. You could sort of I, find the good in it. Yeah, I, I did my second one, and I was bored is too strong a word, but I, sure. I knew this wasn't a long-term proposition. Yeah. I wanted to do my own thing. I think, I mean, we've sort of all been in that position, right? Mm-hmm. You're writing on a show that's yeah. not your show, or maybe it even is your show, and. Uh, you know, you sort of you you find the things that you can like about it, but there's there has to be an escape. Plan. And you learn things. You know, I think it's the first time I got in the editing room. I think, I think, mm-hmm. I think. Um, yeah, was casting. This the first time you had been sort of involved with production as well. Yeah, I'm trying to get the timeline. I'm trying to remember if Breaking Away came before or after this. I guess it mm-hmm. must have come because like Breaking Away I did everything. Time, so it right? was it was it was. But uh, and my attack on it was I think a little different again because I thought of myself as a director. Mm-hmm. So I would write scripts, and if you saw the way I wrote scripts, I wrote them as instruction manuals because most of the directors in television at that moment were not, either were not highly motivated or weren't terribly gifted. It was, it was a journeyman's job. They were usually the person who knew the least about the show that yeah. was on the thing and didn't really, they were just, it was about getting it done in, I think back then it was seven days. Yeah. So I really, I called out shot. I did everything you're not supposed to do and, and the scripts were very textured and very layered and, you know, um, and that, that was very unusual, particularly in television back then. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I want to pick up uh, Moonlighting in a second. Uh, but, Rob, I want to talk about Walker, Texas Ranger. All right. <laughs> what do you want to <laughs> So, yeah. you, you came off of Magnificent Seven. Yeah. Um, which I assume ran for 10 seasons, but you left early on, right? Sure. No, that <laughs> was. Still uh, I, I left show. when it left. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And so then uh, I'd written a feature. That again didn't get made, but got some notice. And, mm-hmm. uh, and did you have to after like being in TV for that year? Did you have to have some sort of, some new material to sort of introduce yourself, or was no, it just no? It was uh, it was just sort of happenstance that again, uh, you know, I I worked on that TV show. I decided that I want to shift to TV, and uh, so right when Magnificent Seven went down. Uh, I got, you know, asked to meet on Walker, Texas Ranger, mm-hmm. which... And was uh, the show, had it started already? Was this the oh, first Oh, yeah, season? no, this was, no, this was, I, I was only on for the last two seasons oh, okay. of the show. Um, and, uh, 
yeah, so met with the guys there. They had read uh, this feature that I had written and liked it and met with Chuck. And I had uh, I wrestled in high school, and at the time I think I was actually taking uh, a, a Brazilian style jujitsu. So I was able to speak in a language that he understood, oh, and uh, and then got hired and spent a lot of time in Dallas, which is where they shot the show, mm-hmm. because um, at the, by the time I got on that show, he kind of ran everything. Wow. Um, Interesting. He. Uh, uh, there was uh, not really a room. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, this guy named Gordon Dawson, who had uh, worked on the Rockford Files, was mm-hmm. running it. Um, but we were all based here in Los Angeles, and uh, then you would go down for about a month at a time to Dallas uh-huh. to sort of do rewrites on whatever script was there and, and help out on set and deal with Chuck. And uh, and Chuck liked me, so I got to do that all, more than That's others. Um, <laughs> how and, was rewriting, and how was rewriting for Chuck? Well, again, uh, you know, the the uh, when when Walker came out, everybody thought that it was going to tank, mm-hmm. and so a, a lot of the people who were sort of on the, um, uh, uh, the you know gave birth to the show left before wow. it took off. Um, and actually, you know, by the time I was on it, it had been like a top ten show, and I mean, it, it had a big following, and and in large part because Chuck cared very deeply about the show and worked very very hard mm-hmm. on making it the way he wanted to make it. Um, uh, so you would write a uh, you you would pitch to him, you would outline, he would sign off on that. Wow. But the big moment was when you would do uh, a read through with him, and it was just you and maybe another producer, a senior level producer, and him. How do you know who the <laughs> alpha male? at the read-through is. It's the guy who's just come from a workout and is not wearing a shirt. So he'll come in and sit down in Dallas, and then you'll read the script, and he will read all the parts. He'll read Fade In. He'll read all the other characters. He'll read himself. But he will have done a very... He would have done a, a very, very thorough job of saying, this is what I would like to happen here, or why are we doing this here? And, uh... And, uh... The goal was just to get him to close the script because at the time Les Moonves was was running the network and if Chuck had closed the script, uh, nobody, not even Les, was gonna was gonna mess with it. Um, may I tell a, a brief story? Yeah, of course. So, uh, so my first script, the goal is to get it closed, and uh, and I'm there with a with another producer and Chuck, and we're reading the script, and we're maybe. I don't know, two pages away from the end when a relative of Chuck's walks in who was involved with the show and uh, and Chuck sees him and says, hey, do you have any ideas about the script? We're reading it. Well, you got any thoughts? And he was like, boy, do I have a lot of thoughts. I think we could do this, that, the other thing. And he's basically just ripping out fence post. And uh, so... Chuck, it's sad that this is a podcast because you don't get the visual, but basically, if you're me, uh, Chuck looks to his friend, his family member, and looks to me and goes, well, Rob, what do you think? <laughs> and I look to this guy who's a co-EP on the time, dude named Bob Gookin. I don't think he's in the business anymore, but he was wonderful. And so he, he I look to Bob, and Bob steeples his fingers. <laughs> and then he looks to Chuck, and he says, well, Chuck, we could do it the way 
uh, your brother is suggesting. But I think in this version, you're more heroic. <laughs> and Chuck thinks about it for a second and goes, no, we're going to keep it as is. And he closes the, <laughs> the script, and I go outside and I hug Bob. <laughs> Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, so that's what that it was. was fantastic. Yeah. Chuck, uh, Chuck knew what he wanted and, and sure. knew what he was good at uh-huh. and, and wanted to do that. Yeah. And, you know, did it pretty well. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting thing to me. I mean, the, the showrunner was not the showrunner. The guy who really made this show. Yeah, I mean, I think you was know, the star. T- t- on certain shows, um, yeah, you know, the, the the saying on some shows is that you know, the first year the cast works for right. the showrunner, second year they work it together, and the third year you're kind of at their mercy unless you're able to craft a, a show in a culture where that's not allowed to happen. Right. But it, it, that's the way it happens a lot of times. Yeah, I mean, and Hillary, you were telling me before that the actors on Beyond are terrific. Like it's, it feels well, like a group effort with them. Yeah. Well, they're Canadian and they're young. <laughs> so. Canadian and they're young. Getting input from the actors, as like Rob described on Magnificent Seven and on on Walker. Um, on Beyond, uh, not as much. Mm. Um, on, it was a different experience on Person of Interest yeah. because um, I didn't start writing until season four of that show. And so, you know, um, Jim Caviezel and Michael Emerson had been um, playing their characters for a few years and had a lot of ownership over them. So mm-hmm. they had a little bit more input. Um yeah, on Beyond, I mean, it's still a brand new show, um, and they're young, and so it's it's collaborative, but it, but they definitely they definitely don't uh, read all the parts in the, uh, the table reader. <laughs> and shirts are mostly so. on. Uh, well, actually, oh, really? not really. I mean, it's a, it's a freeform show. It's young sure. people. Shirts of come off a lot, actually. <laughs> um, I actually enough. had uh, an episode where one of the young actors, um, uh, John Weitzel, who's really <laughs> wonderful, um, I had to do a sex scene with him. It was the first time I'd ever written anything like that. And uh, he came in in like a, a boxer brief, very tiny little thing. And um, I was so worried about the girl in the scene and making sure she was comfortable and was sure. not forced to wear very little clothes and all that. And then John comes in in this, and I was absolutely <laughs> mortified. Um, and I would look at the director. I was like, "Can he wear normal boxers or something? This feels intense." Uh, and he was like, "No, no, no. They'll love it. They'll love it." And I did I'm have sure they'll love it. <laughs> I was completely mortified. Um, and that was the first time I had met him. So I was like, "Nice to meet you, John. I'm really sorry. I'm making you get naked." Uh, and um, when it when it aired, I had a lot of friends that actually emailed me and texted me and thanked me for it. So that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's. I do want to get back to moonlighting, and this would seem like a good time to get into um, the actor relationships. But this is going to be the one interview where we don't have to talk about that. Okay. Um, I really <laughs> want to hear about the the creation of this show. Uh, was this? I mean, detective shows, as you said, were <clears throat> everywhere. Um, and and Rob and I were actually talking just before you got here about how this was a different take. This was a show that well, sort was, of. Started to create what modern TV is All and how people talk. And, yeah. yeah. Well, the truth was, I, I actually sort of had a lot of contempt uh, for the for the form. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had, as I mentioned, I had this deal with ABC where I did three two-hour movies, and the idea was that one of them would be a backdoor pilot. And I had done the first two, and I was very, very proud of them. But this was a moment when ABC was referred to as Aaron's Broadcasting mm-hmm. Company. Aaron Spelling, really provided almost all the dramatic programming that ABC aired. And there was a very, very specific paradigm that those shows occupied. The men all looked a certain way. The women all looked a certain way. Everybody behaved a certain way. 
And again, I didn't watch tell I had no interest in any of that nonsense. So I did two two-hour pilots that I was very, very proud of that everybody looked at and went, this is really good, but it's way too arty for the room. What, what were those pilots? Uh, in what way were they different to what was on TV? Well, the first one, <laughs> the first one was called Concrete Beat, and it was my way of doing a sneaky anthology in a moment when anthologies were... Right. Yeah. yeah, anathema to television. Uh, this guy wrote for a magazine not unlike Esquire, so it allowed him to go out every week and sort of do a different story. Sure. And I modeled it after, there was a writer at that time named Bob Green who did a column called American Beat, and I was sort of modeling it after that. Hmm. And got a really great cast together and got Bob Butler to direct it, the guy who did Hill Street and mm-hmm. all this stuff, and it was a fantastic pilot. You, I mean, you would have had to be a Cretan not to look at it and go, this is never going to play on ABC. But I was headstrong and arrogant and convinced that I was going to elevate the dialogue at ABC. Um, did the second pilot, which was more, it was me trying to be a little more commercial, and it was called A uh, Long Time Gone, and it was about a guy, Paul Lamatt. Um, I don't know if you guys remember him. He was in American Graffiti and... Um, uh, a couple of other fairly big mm-hmm. movies, and he played a guy who is sort of a he, he fancied himself a detective, but the truth is he was a mess and kind of couldn't really live life. And one day, literally, there's a knock on the door, and it's his eight-year-old son who he's unaware of, and he's now sort of, you know, shackled with this kid, and and they go off and solve crimes. This was me again trying to trying to find a lane that sure. ABC would find more palatable, uh, and they looked at it and went, "This is better," but so now I taken two of my three swings and they said okay so we're gonna now that we've spent at that time i think it was four million dollars on these two things we're gonna tell you what to do and i said oh no don't do that and they said yes we want you to do a boy girl detective show i said i hate those they said we don't care and what was around it was it, it was hard, like to hard, hard to hard on okay. yeah yeah i mean it's, and, and if i tell you i'd never watched these shows they had no allure for me yeah um they represented everything I was uninterested in, in entertainment. You know, they felt old and they felt mm-hmm. contrived and all that. Anyway, so they said, well, that's what you're going to do. We'll find a girl, somebody like Cheryl Ladd, and we'll find a guy who looks good in a tux. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I'm going to waste six months. This is, I'm, this is so the wrong fit. And then at the end of that, they said, you can do whatever you want with it, but that's what you're doing. And all I heard was, <laughs> you can do whatever you want with it. So I wrote the two-hour pilot. And... Um, I was about halfway through with it, and I realized I was writing uh, Sybil Shepard. She had had a movie career. She had been in a number of sort of big movies, and then her movie career had ebbed, and she had just done a series on NBC the year before called uh, Yellow Rose, a sort of a modern Western that didn't work. Mm -hmm. She was living in a condo in Studio City, and I was actually able to get a meeting with her. Um, and I, I'm a couple of years younger than she is, and, you know, she's a very beautiful woman, and, you know, all that stuff. So we, we go to this restaurant that I, on my own, would never go into, where I felt instantly intimidated. <laughs> and she walks in, and I was with my producing partner, the guy who sort of line produced everything that I had done at that point. And uh, the way he tells him, um, I said something brilliant when I introduced myself, like, oh, yeah, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, <laughs> I was, you know, very uh, intimidated. But she sat down and she said, you know, it's a Hawksian comedy. I had no idea what a Hawksian comedy was. <laughs> I truly didn't know what she was talking about. Um, later came to realize she was talking about Howard Hawks. Yeah. Um, and she said, if the second half is as good as the first half, I would be interested in, hmm. in, in perhaps doing this. So that made it real. All of a sudden, here was this sort of, you know, somebody's name. And, but that's, and, let, me, let me interrupt for a second. Sure. I mean, that's an interesting and, and astute take on, on 
her, for on her part, but you weren't looking at these Howard Hawks movies, not and as emulating them. So, so what was going into that script? What were you trying to? I was trying do? to. I. This is going to sound very. Um, I didn't see any men on television that I recognized. Mm-hmm. Sure, they, they were Remington Steel. They were right? all sort of square jawed um, and of ambivalent. Uh, sexuality and um, I, I didn't see anyone as bad as I was. Um, I didn't see anyone as romantic as I was. I didn't see anyone as poetic as I was. I didn't see anyone of my sort of experience. I grew up in a working class community and I saw these sort of entertainments as flights of fancy and mm-hmm. all that kind of thing. So the first thing I was looking for was Where's somebody that I recognize? That was the A part of it. And I thought, and B, I never, I very rarely authentically laughed in television. I was prompted to laugh. You'd hear those laugh tracks, or you'd hear that music, that, and you knew that was, by implication, that was supposed to be funny. And I had, again, an enormous snob, an enormous snob, and I had tremendous contempt for television. I resented that these people were given an opportunity to speak to 30 million. I mean, when we did Moonlight, we would get 35, 36 million people watching. This is when people watch TV. Yeah. We, we, we would get a 33 share. Yeah. And then I'd get scolded because ABC would call and go, you understand, 67% of the country rejected you. I mean, you were playing to an enormous tent. And the idea that people had an opportunity to write stories and tell stories to that tent and not work at the top of their game, but rather at the bottom of the game, infuriated me. Mm. Because I was... I was young, but I was old enough to have, as a child, seen The Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm. See, you would occasionally see a show. I remember seeing a pilot called The Law mm-hmm. with Judd Hirsch that was just, you, you, and, I, and I've spoken with Steve Bochco about it. For him, it was also like an illuminating moment. You see this and you go, oh, oh th- you can be great on television if you choose to be. Not that we were great. I'm not suggesting we were great, but I'm suggesting we had a target. Right. Yeah, and you can be ambitious. Yes, think, exactly. And There you was can, very little ambition There was in no ambition. It was, yeah. it was like getting a job at the post office. Well, I mean, there's a reason you responded. As long as you, you had Charo on every six weeks, <laughs> right. you, you know, the show would... Uh, but there was a reason you responded to Taxi. I mean, I think yes. that was an ambition. I think a lot of the MTM shows were ambitious. And it was tonally ambitious. ambitious. Yeah. It was very human. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that was the other thing. I thought, if you can figure out a way to sort of be human and also sort of bust out of the conventions and and the other thing and 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 I was very impatient and I was very uh, easily bored so I was constantly when I was doing moonlighting constantly looking for ways a to amuse myself mm-hmm. but b also I felt an obligation to these actors I love actors I mean it's interesting we we talk about actors and you talk about Chuck I was sitting here thinking how admirable that this guy would take possession oh. of this thing and say yeah, absolutely you know yeah. he, he knew how to curate this thing yeah, yeah. I, I love actors yeah. I mean I love working it's part of why you want to be a director because you want to be on the floor and you want to you want to you want to be part of that huddle you know and and um, so once I got Moonlighting going and it wasn't an instant hit in fact I mean, it premiered, and I remember Howard Rosenberg, who was the premier critic in the L.A. Times, and back then everybody read the L.A. Times every day, the calendar section. The headline was Beauty and the Beast, the Beast being Bruce Willis, by the way. Um, And he talked about what a horrible show it was. Mm. And that was sort of the prevailing opinion. Hmm. And then, like, three weeks later, he said, oops, I was wrong. I didn't get it. Wow. 
But the show was still like number 63 or right. 64. And it was only, and again, it was a very different model back then, but it was only over the summer when it was in reruns mm-hmm. that the advertising community went, we want to be part of that. That's just weird, you know, and different. And it makes yeah. a different noise. And we want to be part of that. And that's when ABC said, okay, well, you know, none of us knew. I mean, I literally got in the call going, hey, we really love this show, but it's, it's clearly not going to do any better than it's doing, and thank you for your effort. I mean, I'd gotten that call. <laughs> and Bruce was like, okay, because he was already starting to get calls from, like, Larry Kasdan, you want to go make a movie, you know, and this one now. We had all gotten what we wanted out of it, which was we were looking for, frankly, we are looking to dig a tunnel and get to the movies, you know? Um, so That's you know, really funny. Did you, when writing that uh, pilot script, yeah. did you have... A series in mind? Like, did you know? No. I, did you think no, I have a hundred episodes I will t- And then I'll stop talking because I, I don't want to dominate the conversation. Right. But I never have and I never will. And here's my deal with that. Mm-hmm. I believe that what's great about television, uh, among a lot of things, but one of the things is we tell a hundred chapter story. We set down to tell a hundred chapter story. No other medium's doing that. Okay? I, I went, I wrote a pilot that Ben Affleck was going to direct. This was about three years right. ago. And we went to 15 places. One of the places we went to was Netflix. And they said to us, we're not in the pilot business. We're in the series business. Mm-hmm. We're in the, you know, season business. What's your first season? And I said, I will stand here and I will tell you the first season. And when I'm done, I'll look you in the eye and tell you it's total horseshit. Right. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, good TV, great TV is like jazz. You, you, you put it on its feet. And you respond to it. You look at the disc. You go, oh, I didn't realize he could play the trombone, or she has this color. Or these two people get along, and these two right. people don't. don't. Yeah. There's an interesting friction there that I want to explore. And you're a fool if you don't hop on that train and ride it. That's the thing that's great about television. So I, I said to him, because, again, I'm, you probably can't tell, but I, I'm a fairly arrogant asshole. Uh, I, I said... Because they had just done House of Cards. I said, mm. so you're telling me David Fincher came in here and told you what season one was? And he said, yes. As a matter of fact, he did. He said, but to be fair, it was based on a British format. So we had the British format. I said, okay. Now, having done season one, did he do what he said he'd do? He said, absolutely not. Yeah. I said, that's my point. Why? <laughs> you know, and I think some of this, and, and, and there is no show that I revere more than Mad Men, mm. but it, it makes me insane when Matt Weiner who I don't know, <laughs> says that he had that image in his head for the, that he knew exactly where he was going. Mm-hmm. The great thing about that show, it seems to me, or it feels like is, is this Don Draper's show? No, wait, this is right. Betty's show. No, this is... There's he, discovery along the way and, for the writers and the audience. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, a great acknowledgement that the audience is smart yeah. and they don't have to be spoon-fed. That you can put this breadcrumb out here and then pick it up over here, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know? Um, lo- long answer to a short question, no, that, but anyway. It's, it's, um, it's really interesting. I think it suggests a number of other questions. I mean, Rob, you've worked on a lot of these shows that have that same sort of episodic format, mm-hmm. um, but also bigger stories, bigger arcs going on, serialized arcs going on, like mm-hmm. Charmed or, or even Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, is, it, is it folly to make a plan at the beginning of the season? No. I mean, I don't think it's folly to make a plan just so that you have a North Star that you're gunning for, but I, uh, I totally agree with Glenn that it's, uh, it evolves uh, uh, 
it evolves as you go, right? Um, you're sort of living through the series as you're writing it, and uh, you thought that two people were going to get together around episode 10, or somebody was going to die, and then you realize, wait, this person can't die, mm-hmm. or these two people absolutely shouldn't be together. In fact, we should bring in a third and complicate it and mess it up in some way. I mean, that's the that's absolutely the fun of of series television. Um, uh, I, uh, I wish I could. I don't have an example that I can give you right now of where we sort of made a plan. Though on every, on almost every series that I've been on, uh, there's a usually the first two or three weeks of the season, um, you. Uh, uh, you sort of lay out broad strokes about this is where we think we'd like to take each of these characters. These are some new characters we'd like to bring in. Um, this is what we think the climax might be. Um, mm-hmm. Just so that you've, you know, you know, you've got something to shoot for. You, you start to bang out some sort of structure, even yeah. if it's going to change. And I think part of it is also because you want to be able to tell the studio on the network this yeah, is what we're going to try to do, right? Um, but they don't hold you to it, nor should they, right? right. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And and Hillary Beyond is sort of, it, it works in the way that is sort of in vogue right now, which mm-hmm. is these highly serialized stories. Yeah. Um, when you came in on season one, what did Adam know? What did the creator know? What did he share with the room? And and what changed over that? Well, it was interesting because um, I think he had a I think he had a concept of uh, what the world was sort of going to be when he wrote the pilot and um, he brought on um, David Icke who mm-hmm. ran you know he did Battlestar Galactica yeah. and uh, Falling Skies and a couple other shows and um, I think that once they talked um, it's, it, it evolved a lot um, I don't know how much he wants me to say as opposed to like what it used to be sure. uh, regarding what it used to be and what it is now but um, I think think that the first season involved a lot of finding it's a it's a sci-fi show um and it involved a lot of finding like what that world was mm-hmm. and who these characters were uh so it, it evolved a, a lot um and uh yeah uh and I, I i don't know it's interesting because we're only 10 episodes um and what they did that was kind of was kind of unusual you're talking about getting a 33 share um our show gets, I think, less than a million viewers mm-hmm. on TV. Um, Which is but not they, unusual at all, especially yeah. for you know a basic cable show. Well, in Freeform, I think a lot of people don't even know how to find Freeform right. on, on TV. <laughs> and their audience doesn't watch television on yeah. television. So what they did concurrently was they released all the episodes on Hulu, um, all of mm-hmm. them at once. And um, on there, I think we got 7 million viewers, um, huh. which, I mean, uh, Freeform was very excited about those numbers and that's why we got renewed as soon as you know as soon right. as the first episode aired um, so it, it's just a very it's a very very different it's a very different time does it I mean did it change the way that the story was told for season two like was were you planning storytelling week to week in season one whereas in season two you kind of knew that people were going to watch all everything at once you know it actually uh, we didn't know that they were going to do that releasing them all at once um, when we did the first season Um, but knowing that in the second season I think that that was something that we kept in mind Um, you can be a lot more serialized um, and you know you have episode to episode you have kind of your episode story like which character are you focusing on emotional particularly emotional arcs I think episode Mm -hmm. to episode but when it comes to story, you, you, you're you free to kind of leave off and 
for better or for worse, I think. Um, I think sometimes when you're when you make television shows like that and you binge them, you kind of get you kind of get mired. You kind of get lost because you're instead of doing like a five, instead of a five act structure or three act structure, it's sort of a ten to thirteen act structure, yeah. which can be uh, a little. Um, Intense, I think. It's, it's overwhelming. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Ben, can I ask a question? Um, Glenn, I want to ask you a question because we're talking about character yeah. and character arcs over seasons. And uh, one of the things that they always say in a room, you know where I'm going, yes. but I'm going to share it with the Okay. So, one of the things that they always say is if you've got a uh, 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 sexual tension between uh, male and female on a show, you never have them kiss. You never have them kiss. You never have them kiss because <laughs> when Moonlighting did it with Dave and Maddie, it, it took a turn. Do you, it, was there a, did you, did you guys wrestle with that decision? Oh, did it? And and are people right about that assumption when they when they say it as if sure. it is gospel? I, I, I don't think so. Okay. Um, it, it, two things that are sort of interesting. One is they had actually kissed prior to that. Okay. Um, we did a black and white episode, which was a Fantasia mm-hmm. um, that Orson Welles introduced, and they kissed in that episode. One of the reasons we did it was they were playing different characters, and we thought, you know, it's hey, it's legal right. cheating. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it doesn't count. But. When I had them get together, I mean, because they actually go to bed and everything, and that was the thing I think that a lot of people felt sort of pushed us over the edge. Um, my feeling always was that that then opened a door to even more interesting storytelling. The sad thing was, through a whole bunch of events that none of us could foresee, um, uh, Sybil got pregnant. She had twins. So she was unavailable for a long period of time following that. Right. Um, there was a, an enormous writer's strike. Right. Um, there, there were just a, a whole bunch of... And we were all finally being... We were all being allowed into the country club we weren't allowed into when we started the show, which is suddenly... You know, Bruce had made two movies, one of which had done okay, mm-hmm. one of which did horribly, and the thought was his movie career was over, and then they couldn't find anyone to star in this this art film, Die Hard. (laughs) And at at Uh the same time, I had used the hiatus that we took because Sybil was pregnant to direct Clean and Sober. Which was awesome. And um, and Sybil, Sybil had always been an unhappy camper. Uh Just the workload was, and I understand, she had been something else, and now she was doing, I mean, when we did, we did an episode of I was very proud of called Atomic Shakespeare, which was all in iambic pentameter. Um, and I remember she came to me and said, why are we doing this? This is so hard. Why can't we just do regular television shows? Right. But Bruce and I were like two drunk sailors on leave. <laughs> you know, I, he would come in every week, what are we doing this week, boss? And I'd say, let's do... Let's do a boxing show. You know, when I was a kid, you'd watch the Three Stooges, and invariably there'd be a, a Three Stooges or a Bowery Boys or an Abbott and Costa where they were boxers, so you could do all these stupid physical gags. And I, I'd find any reason to indulge whatever particular nonsense I was interested in. And or things would come from the... I remember I got a call from Phil Ramone. Literally, my phone rang, and Phil Ramone was on the phone. He said, Billy Joel's written a song for you. He wants you to use it on the show. And it was this nine, ten-minute opus called Big Man on Mulberry Street. So we literally crafted a whole episode around it, and I'd always wanted to do something involving storytelling through dance. So I called... Again, arrogant asshole. You have right. to keep that in mind. Right. I called Stanley Donnan, who at 26 directed Singing in the Rain and went on and directed so many fantastic movies, a lot of the musicals. Um, and I said, would you come and 
direct this dance number because we had this 10 minute dance number to the song and he said no no how long do you have to shoot it and I said a oh, day maybe <laughs> anyway I ultimately convinced him to come do it right. um, I went to Bruce and said you have to learn to dance he was like what you know and so <laughs> you know he started to learn to dance we re- realized Sybil was never going to do this okay you know it just required so we got Sandal Bergman who had starred in um, All That Jazz uh-huh. and we did this Dance number with special effects and animation, all kind. Of, and honestly, it was me going. I got to learn about this. How do I do that? Sure. What premise do I? Um, and the and weirdly, there was this connection with the audience. The audience was sort of like into it because right. it was like nothing else on TV. And was it because the ratings were there that you were allowed to get yes. away with this? Yes, I mean, uh, Lou Ehrlich, who was the second in command at ABC, would come to my office about every six months. <laughs> he'd close the door, and he'd come at me, and he'd go, I'm going to take an Uzi, I'm going to shove it down your throat, I'm going to pull the trigger, and I'm not going to stop until all the blood in your body is covered in this office. If you don't get this thing under control, you get this thing under control. And then he'd turn, and he'd leave, he'd get to the door, and go, but don't change anything. And then he'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, because the ratings were, they were really quite outrageous. Yeah. And, and... And it also had sort of captured, in the way that television shows sometimes do, in that moment it had sort of captured everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. So we would do, and this was the other thing that that I get blamed for a lot, and quite rightly, um, we would do as many as as I felt comfortable. I would shoot them until they were perfect. I didn't care that we had an eight-day schedule. I'd shoot them for 14 days. We would have, don't listen, DGA, and the directing credits had, a lot of times had nothing to do with who had actually shot Mm -hmm. the show. Um... I wanted them to be really special. I used to say to Bruce, if our kids are in college and they're watching this at midnight, we will have <laughs> achieved my goal. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. for me, the biggest kick was when we were in Mad Magazine. You know, I was like, <laughs> okay, now we've You've made it. <laughs> but I also, my attitude was, I'm doing this once, I'm going to burn it down, and mm-hmm. then I'm going to go make movies. I'm never coming back. <laughs> um, but there's, there's also, I mean, as you touched on earlier, like, to be ambitious in storytelling, you have to take these risks, and sometimes it's, it can lead to unhappy circumstances. But if you know, and if you're making really the thing you want to make, you're being paid. Well, they they feel like I mean, I thought I was going to be driving a laundry right. truck for a living. So I mean, you're being paid a lot of money. You're sure. hanging with people you love. It becomes kind of a surrogate family. Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing this thing that everyone else in the world wants to do. Risk? What's the risk? That someone's going to yell at you? That some executive <laughs> is going to wiggle his finger at you? I mean, to me, it didn't seem like a risk. Right. It seemed like a risk to sort of be there and not go for the throat, sure. you know? Um, and again, the arrogance of youth, you mm-hmm. know, and, and ignorance is bliss. I'd never worked for an extended period of time a studio show. They can't tell you what the first episode, first eight episodes of Moonlighting cost. There was no accounting. Hmm. You know, yeah. when they started doing the account, they were appalled. <laughs> but, but, um, but again, it was this mon- it was this huge hit, right? You know, there was nothing. You could, you, I mean, the first season we were nominated for, I think, it was sixteen Emmys. Wow. wow. You know, which at that time, and in both comedy and drama yeah. simultaneously. So, and that was unheard of back then. So, you know, there wasn't a, a lot, and they were frankly taking a lot of pride in it too. So it's you know right. it's that bifurcated thing where you. <laughs> well, you couldn't you know, argue with the finished product, you know. I, well, I, li- I, li- I like to feel that there are some that aren't very good. I mean, the but, invariable but so overall. Yes, and know. and it was what a great, you know, you know, Bruce is still one of my closest friends. Uh, you know, um, well, clearly, I mean, you do get these situations where things come together. Right? Yes, like you found the right guy. Yes, uh, who was as into taking the and being ambitious. I brought him to the work. network eleven times. They rejected him ten times. What did they want? 
they wanted that square-jawed sure. guy who looked good in the tux. Yeah, but I want to get back to Rob's question about you know, but so the I, rule we're all told. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, my feeling was, but but by the way, I was fired. Um, I didn't do the last twenty-two episodes. Okay. Um, How many seasons? We were on the air for four and a half seasons. I think we did sixty-six episodes in four and a half seasons. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, but there was a point. There was a point at which they said, "Okay, you, you need to go." Actually, that's not true. There was a lot of conflict with Sybil and ABC. There was a there was a change in the guard at ABC. Brandon Stoddard came in, and he said to me, "You need to draw a line in the sand here." So I stupidly went and drew a line in the sand. And when the when it was all over, she said to the network, "Pick," right? <laughs> and they went. Oh, <laughs> and about so, that line boy. You drew. so yeah. I, I suddenly and I, I, I was I had an office at Warner Brothers at the same time I was developing movies and I remember I, I was very forlorn about it obviously and I was walking across the lot and Joel Silver who's a very bombastic uh, <laughs> talented producer and sort of the king of Warner Brothers at the time he's doing the Lethal Weapon movies and all that stuff he looked at me and went what, what, what's the matter with you and I said I told him what happened and he said don't ever do that <laughs> don't ever do that you don't look as good in pumps as she does and that was you know and he was right I mean uh-huh. I, I sure. made that mistake twice in my life I, I actually made it again, again I, I directed a movie with um, Warren Beatty and Warren and ended up cutting the movie in it hmm. and I didn't see the movie until very very late in the process we, we did a preview and and on the way back we were flying back from the preview and I said to the chairman of Warner Brothers I said I made a much better movie than that please let me go back in and cut it and he looked at me and went Glenn <laughs> and I said what and he said I need him I need him to do Oprah I need him to do Entertainment right. Week I need him. and I suddenly went oh I did that again didn't I <laughs> I I forgotten that right. it, it's certainly in executives minds if you're not there next week you're not there and I'm not there next week it's a problem, but it's not insolvable. But as long as the face that's on the screen yep. looks the same, you know. That's well, I think. Do you guys think it's easy for a writer to get into the mindset that we're all in this together, we're all making this thing, you know, and we're on the same page about what we want it to be because we're there so early in the process? It's easier for a writer to make that mistake than an, an actor to say to make that mistake. And sometimes that's not a mistaken the, the, assumption. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great assumption to have. I think that uh, television is is a pretty collaborative medium, yeah. whether you want it to be or not, and uh, so you are all in it together. Um, uh, are, are you? Are you? I'm confused by the question. But I guess it's about seeing, having the view of what that final product is going to be, mm-hmm. right? And and all of us working towards that. When in fact, that's about. Communicating, and and I guess it's on the writer to communicate that. Yeah, what you want that final product to be. Yeah, and 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 win people over uh, to mm-hmm. to to sharing that vision. And I've you know been on shows where that's been clearly communicated either through love or fear uh, that this is the way it's going <laughs> to sure. go, right? Um, and also where people are you know fighting at cross purposes. And sometimes it's not even. Uh, I mean, it's it can be. Uh, I don't, you know, maybe, uh, Glenn, you haven't experienced this, but as somebody who's who's uh, who's sort of worked 
up the ranks. I've been on shows where you know you've got two people that you're working for, and they're disagreeing, and so you're trying to please person A, right. and then they say no, that's awful. So then you try to please person B, and the other person says it's awful. So so there's that. And then also there are times when you know the studio and network um, are fighting with each other. That's part of the reason you know Mob Doctor that I did for Fox. I think part of the reason that we were confused about stuff was because we kind of had uh, we were encouraged to go one way by the studio and another way by the network, which happens a lot. And mm-hmm. I think you know successful shows are able to navigate that and uh, and figure out how to either fool everybody into into believing that they're being satisfied or actually do satisfy them. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I mean it's definitely a dance. Well, I guess there are two sure. two at least two different kinds of friction that we're sort of talking about here. And yeah. One comes from the people who are paying the bills, right? Mm-hmm. And that if you're getting them fighting, then that really can sink a show. Uh, the creative friction among writers, directors, actors, and departments can actually Be help good. make a show Absolutely. something great. Yeah. Um, I, did we answer your question about the kiss yet? Yes, absolutely. What I didn't say, and what I meant to say was, in my mind, I had a. I thought it took us to a wonderful, would have taken us to a wonderful place. A really interesting. <laughs> and, and, and the thing I was always interested in in Moonlighting, and then in a different way in Medium Later, was how much can you rub up against two scenes? One that's maybe very funny and at the same time put it right next to something that's terribly tragic mm-hmm. in medium, something horrific, and then you have these kids running around. And so I was always into that, and I thought, frankly, getting these two people together would open up a, a lot of different mm. kinds, different colors and different music and different, and uh, you know. But, hey, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I want to talk very briefly before we wrap up uh, about pitching uh, and developing. Pitching specifically, uh, I'm in the middle of it now. Uh, and, and Hillary, you said you, you've done a little bit, but you're I'm, certainly yeah. about to enter. No, I'm very interested in what you guys have um, to say. Yeah, do you have specific <laughs> questions? Is there stuff that you're concerned about in taking out a project? Um, well, I, I mean, I'm as you guys know, I'm, I'm brand new, and this is the first time I've ever encountered anything like this. Um, you know, it, and I sort of feel like I'm wading into a pool that I'm not necessarily ready for yet. Um, so I, I'm very curious about. Right now, I'm doing it. I'm working on a potential adaptation of a comic book, and mm-hmm. you know, um, I've I've never met the people that wrote it um, or anything like that. And I really am just open to hearing. Your yeah. What what have you? What pitching has worked for you, and what are mistakes that you guys think that people make? Uh, for m- I think that the current climate of pitching right now seems to be you need to have two things. You need to have uh, uh, auspices and uh, intellectual property. And I've talked to executives and other writers about it, and it seems like. I mean, you talk to some of the executives and they say, listen, when I have to go to buy boss and sell it, you know, up the ladder, I've got to say I've got this 800-pound gorilla and I've got this thing that everybody knows. Even if this one guy was saying, yeah, you know, I've got uh, a great idea. It's Vikings. And it's like, okay, that's not an IP. That's like a noun, right? <laughs> but it's something that everybody can hang their hat on. Sure. And if you have it's that. It's easy to understand. Exactly. Have if you have, if you have that and, and someone or right. one's. Of uh, of meaning, then y- your life is infinitely uh, meaning easier. You know, either the writer is a name, or an actor, or a director, or the or producer, a production company. or yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and if you don't have that, it's 
really, really, really hard, regardless of the idea, which is what's unfortunate, um, because it seems like the uh, the gate that is kept is is there. The guards at the gate are much more vigilant, and also a little sort of like, well, unless these boxes are ticked, you're sort of not hmm. getting in. Was Mob Doctor a show that you and Josh? pitched or did you write it? How did that work? Uh, I, I was working on uh, Drop Dead Diva with him, mm-hmm. and he said, let's develop a show. And so we got together and, and uh, came up with the idea. But, you know, he, for uh, uh, Sony was this, is the studio that produced it, and he had a deal at Sony, and we got teamed up with Michael Dinner, who uh, is a great pilot director, mm-hmm. and a great director-director, and, uh, and he got on board, and so all of a sudden, um, and we, then we actually wound up sort of reverse engineering and tethering it to a book that we could hang it oh, on. Oh, interesting. And, uh, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's about alleviating the fear that the executives had. So what would happen during the pitch meetings is uh, I, you know, I would go in and there would be a little introduction and I'd say, uh, here's the show, da, 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 and I'd do my big song and dance and Josh would chime in every once in a while and then at the end, um, all the executives would look to Michael Dinner, the director, and say, but what about the tone? And he would basically say, the tone's going to be fine. And they'd say, great. <laughs> and then we would do the network and the same thing. And they would, and they just needed that one little, but, but it's all going to be okay, isn't it? And Michael would say, yeah, it's all going to be great. And they'd say, fantastic, we're in business. So, Which is really interesting that yeah. like, it was... And, and granted, Michael is a great director, and he's sure. done a bunch of these things, but you and Josh have also been around. Yeah, but they, you know, they want somebody that they can, they, they both want somebody that they can trust, mm-hmm. and they want somebody that they can convince their bosses that they can trust. Yeah. Somebody who's got, you know, weight. Yeah. That's been my experience. No, it, that absolutely makes sense, and that is, it seems like you have these things, as much of these things as you can gather to make yourself bulletproof, Yeah, right? No matter how good an idea it yeah. is. Um, I'm curious about pitching, um, I, you know, you, you went and did some movies, mm-hmm. uh, which are really good, by oh, the way, you. this is another conversation, um, but now and again in Medium, were these pitches, were <laughs> they scripts, how did those come together? Now, now again, story's going to make you sick. I was... I think I just finished doing a movie with Jennifer Aniston. I was living in New York, and Les Moonves called me. He had just gotten to CBS. He said, can I take you to breakfast? I said, sure. Uh, he took me to breakfast, and he said, you should be doing television. And I said, no. I said, I did that once. I fooled everybody. <laughs> they thought I was good at it. And, and I said, and you ran a studio, so you know I wasn't good at it. Because I did. I spent copious amounts of money. I, I got my first profit check on Moonlighting two and a half years ago. <laughs> True story. Uh, anyway, so he said you should you should be doing television. I said no, I'm doing movies and blah blah blah. And he said I, this is over breakfast. He said I'll make you a deal. He said write a pilot, hmm. write anything you want. He said if I don't make it, I will pay you a million dollars. Nice. So I went home and I wrote yeah, now and you again. don't say no to that. Right. I, I never pitched it. I never said mm-hmm. this is the premise. None of that. And it's I don't know if you remember it. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's a weird concept. It's weird. I remember, <laughs> especially for the time. Yeah. And, and Esquire wrote a thing. The, 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 the opening ninety seconds of the scariest ninety seconds of television. You know when he he goes and he puts the eggs on the train. There's this little boy. It's all in Tokyo and blah blah blah. Anyway, blood, um, blood everywhere. Wow. I do remember. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I went and I, I handed in the script and I heard this other part of the story from like Nina Tassler or somebody. She said, one day we go to work and there's this script from Glenn Karen and none of us had ordered a script from Glenn Karen. We didn't even know he wrote 
pilots anymore. She said, so like everybody went around scampering around trying to find out where the script came from. And, and somebody ran in and listened. Oh, yeah, I had breakfast with them. That's the <laughs> thing. We have to make it otherwise it's a million bucks. <laughs> so we made it. It's cheaper to make the script than to pay you out. <laughs> so we made it. And again, it's very much its own beast. Yeah. It's not like any other show you've ever seen. So, of course... I got a phone call, can you come to California? Because I was living in New York. Can you come to California? Les wants to talk to you about the pilot. So I go in and Les is standing there and he's like, he didn't like the pilot at all. He, he didn't like the pilot at all. But And the guy who was running the studio, which was Paramount Studio, which wasn't CBS yet, Carrie McCluggage, said, have you tested it? And Les said, I don't have to test it. And Carrie said, you should test it. Because it tested through the roof. I think partly because no, you know, you don't right. see, you know, it's kind of like, it's that meal that tastes really good, but you don't know what the next course is. Um, so he put it on television. He put it on Friday nights at 9 o'clock after Candid Camera. <laughs> it's like a death slot. And still, it got ratings, and it won awards, and then it went away. But I never pitched it. Hmm. Medium was a different beast. I got a phone call, again, from Paramount. They said I was living in New York, uh, and they said, do you believe in psychic phenomenon? And I said, no. And they said, do you have any interest in meeting a woman who thinks she... And I said, no. And uh, I hung up the phone, and the woman I was living with is my wife now. I said, my gosh, you are really arrogant. Why wouldn't you want to meet someone who claims to blah, blah, blah? So sort of begrudgingly, I went to California to meet with the real Alison Dubois. And I sort of marched her through her life. I said, tell me about your first experience. She said, I was eight, and blah, blah, blah. I said, tell me about your second. Tell me about your third. Finally, she got to when she was a teenager. And she said, and she confessed that she started to drink very heavily, that it was the one way that she could keep the voices down. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fascinating. And mm-hmm. I said, has anyone ever prescribed Haldol for you? And she said, what's well, Haldol? I said, it's a drug used to control functional schizophrenics. And she said, I'm not a functional schizophrenic. I said, okay. And we continued to march through her life. And then she started to tell me about how she met this man, fell in love, and got married. And that he was a doctor. doctor he had his doctorate in physics. Mm-hmm. And that's when my antenna really went up because I thought, what's that pillow talk like? Mm-hmm. You know, here's this guy for whom the physical facts of the world are his religion, and this woman who sees a dead Civil War soldier standing in the corner of the bedroom right. who wants to talk about, you know, whatever. That was really my... Because I did this movie with Deborah Winger, and she said to me, she said, everything you do is men and women. And I wasn't conscious of that, but I thought it was a very interesting thing. And I said, oh, really? And she said, but those are the only stories worth doing anyway. And I think there's some truth to that. And so for me, Medium was really about a marriage. Mm-hmm. I went in and pitched it. We took Alison Dubois with us. She spooked the hell out of... Great. Because she'd sit there. She had this thing that she'd, <laughs> she'd go... You, we'd be having a conversation, and she'd go... I know when you're going to die. And you have to see Kevin Riley's face when someone says that to him. And, you know, do you let that walk out of the room? Right, yeah. Um, and that's sort of how we pitched well, That's really funny. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting point about your way into it, and I think the marriage is really what set it apart from sort of a standard procedural or right. what it could have been. But, but to me, that's what marriage is. It's, it's two disparate people. I mean, you, you're, you're not... The identical to your other, whether you know whoever your other is, and it, it's about sort of coming to some agreement about those differences, and loving the person unconditionally. And and here the difference is enormous. I see something you don't yeah. see. I feel something you don't feel. And by the way, I don't understand it. Uh, the thing that Patricia brought to it, which was exactly what I wanted, was this sense of I'm not in control of this. 
I don't completely understand it. I, I'm not here to decode it. I'd rather hmm. not have it. Um, and also the lack of... Um, I mean, when we started, I directed the pilot, we started shooting the pilot, Kevin Riley would call me very upset because I, I, I said to Patricia, in order to have enough empathy, for a person to have so much empathy that they can see into someone else's soul, they have to have very little, um, very little narcissism, <laughs> like maybe none. Like, I don't think this is a person who looks in the mirror much. <laughs> I think there's piles of laundry all around the house. I think she, you know, she, mm-hmm. oh, she's okay. got a wardrobe that comes from Coles. And, mm-hmm. and Patricia was, like, totally game. Like, yeah, yeah let's go. I have no That's need to be stuff, pretty. Yeah. You know, let's, let's, you know, she's got these kids she's trying to wrangle and this husband who, who's sort of like, okay, I'm in this for the long haul, but some of this shit is really weird. <laughs> you know, it, and it, you know, it was great fun to do. It was a wonderful cast. That's a great cool. experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. That's good to hear. All right, we do need to wrap up. Um, I want to make sure you get all your plugs in. Do you know when Beyond is coming back? No. Great. No, probably January <laughs> of 2018. Okay. Um, and uh, the Weapon is going to be Tuesdays at 8 o'clock on Fox. Starting when? Uh, September. And Bull is back. Bull is Tuesday, nine o'clock on CBS. Starting when do you know? September. Okay. I want to say twenty-one, but I'm not certain. I about think that. you may be right. I think we'll be out right around there, so Great. people can check them out. Uh, we'll wrap up as we always do by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What are you getting excited or inspired by? Have you seen any great movies that you want to recommend? Uh, Hillary, we'll start with you. Uh, well, the two shows I'm obsessed with right now are Halt and Catch Fire and Orphan Black. Um, but you feel like Orphan Black is sticking the landing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's... I, I mean, I love it. I love the characters. I think Tatiana Maslany is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and it's great. Good answer. Rob? Uh, I'm going to uh, zag and say the thing that I'm most excited about is the second season of Homecoming, which is a podcast, oh. which is fantastic. And uh, I know that... I what guess, is it? I don't know it at all. Oh, um, it's... Uh, well, they had uh, six episodes last season. They're doing another six now. I guess it's already been optioned for a movie. Um, uh, it is about uh, soldiers coming home who are put through a perhaps less than ethical sort of mind experiment <laughs> thing, and uh, uh, how to sort of how they get out of that and how they try to make I it mean. right. But it's it's wonderfully designed, mm-hmm. and I encourage everybody to check it out. Cool. It's a totally. great cast. It's a great cast. Oh, yes. that one. The one with Oscar Isaac? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, what are you watching? <laughs> I'm watching a lot of Nickelodeon and Disney Channel. <laughs> Believe it or not, I have an eight-year-old. So, you have no uh, kids. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so, and, and it's summer. So in terms of television, I, I don't have a great... Uh, and I'm a, and I'm behind. Sure, you know, I'm like well, well, we a couple all of years behind yeah. on some of this stuff. Um, movie wise, I just saw Dunkirk, which is quite amazing, mm-hmm. um, and you know all sort of all the obvious candidates that have come out this year, movie wise. Um, but truthfully, most of my TV time is spent watching The Thundermans and Hey, uh, Thundermans is pretty good. <laughs> uh, all of that School of Rock, <laughs> great. Um, so, all right, thank you guys. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I feel like we only scratched the surface, uh, but this was all terrific. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 